tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? I do the car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult-Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is the Cult-Worthy Classic, episode 12. And if you tuned in last week, you would have heard my friend Mikey Jones and I talking about 1932's Freaks by Todd Browning, which is now on its way to being the number one downloaded show for the Cult-Worthy Classic. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, go back, check it out. It's a real winner. And in that episode, we talk about a film that he found as a blind buy, 1934's pre-code drama, Double Door, directed by Charles Vidor. Now, this film is as obscure as anything I've come across. It had never had a home video release in almost 70 years. It was part of this weird deal with MCA Universal where they bought a bunch of films from Paramount for their syndicated TV programs. So for the longest time, you could only ever see this film maybe like on a late night local access cable channel or a local affiliate. It was doomed for a life of television. Now, once in a while, it would pop up at film festivals, but it wasn't until this year where we finally got a home media physical release of it. So Kino Lorber's put it out on Blu-ray, is currently $9.99 on their website, or you can actually watch it on YouTube or on archive.org. And the reason why I say this is because we are not going to spoil the ending in today's episode. You really should go out and watch this film. It's only an hour and 15 minutes long, and it has one of the best twists of any film I've ever seen, as well as one of the best villains. So like I said, I will have my friend Mikey Jones jumping into this conversation about this film. And before we start, I just want to say that I am participating in the live stream for The Cure event happening May 19th through the 21st in order to raise $20,000 for cancer research. You can listen to the promo at the end of the episode, or you can go to my website, thecultworthy.com, where I will have a link to all of their connections for donations and the roster of people participating in this event. It's going to be really cool. So without further ado, let's jump into the show with my friend, Mikey Jones. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the show. This is Antonio, your host. I'm here with Mikey Jones once again. Mikey, how you doing? I'm doing good. Look at you. Lucky getting me twice in a row. Yeah, twice in a row. Uh, within a week's time, I had a, another podcaster scheduled and things just kind of went wrong scheduling wise, which happens. But luckily for you and I, we do movie night every week pretty much anyway, regardless if we're recording or not. And you brought me something that I'd never heard of that's brand new to physical media that hasn't been around in like 50, 60 years almost, even longer if you think about it. What are we talking about today? We are talking about the 1934 Paramount Pictures film, Double Door. I mean, oh my God, Mikey, I was blown away by this movie. And you always bring me like interesting stuff. You do these blind buys. I do blind buys on things that are usually like under $15 that I've maybe heard about 
or have seen written about and be like, well, if they're going to write about it, spend the money and I'll buy it and I'll watch it. We've done that many times before. I didn't even know about this one. Yeah, I I didn't either. I, I, I found it on Amazon and it had been my birthday and my brother was want, wanting to get me something. So e- easiest way to do that is just put stuff in the, in the Amazon wish list, right? And then just say, buy me what you think you, what you think you uh, want to get me. And this was, uh, this was one of them. I just, I, I saw that it was released. It intrigued me. I read a little bit about it. Just the fact that it's an older film that hadn't had much of a release history on any other format. Like there was no VHS release, no DVD release, and it had limited runs on television. It occasionally would show up on like film festivals every now and then. Uh, but it was just one that intrigued me just because it was new and first time on anything in Blu-ray. So I grabbed it and did not regret it. Yeah, amazing. Like we talked about Freaks last week. That was last week's episode. And you picked this as your double feature. We were going to get to it eventually anyway, because you talked so highly of it. And we just kind of did this last minute put together. And yeah, that pairing was perfect. I mean, that, that movie was an hour and six minutes. This is an hour and 15, which is funny because it was based on a play. And plays generally have a little bit longer runtime than an hour and 15 minutes. I mean, usually if you count intermission, it's like two hours plus. And this is a drama, a stage drama. So my question is, I wonder if they had cut anything out of it or if this was just a fast-moving, fast-paced story that would get you in and out of the theater very quickly. That's a good question. And I had tried to find the play because I had had heard... Um, you know, this is showing up, this film is showing up on on different people's websites for reviews, um, just because it, it is such a great film, has such great performances, and it it's so new as far as being released for the first time. And so it's shown up, and somebody had mentioned that they thought maybe the ending was different than the stage version, and I was trying to find a copy of the play, but hadn't hadn't been able to get my hands on one so I I could compare the differences. Um, What I know about the play is that it was on Broadway in 1933 and written by Elizabeth A. McFadden and the two, two leads, the two sisters, the two sisters, Mary Morris as Victoria and Anne Reverie as Caroline Van Brett. They play like these kind of spinstery sisters who have inherited this fortune from essentially a slumlord. Like he's their father, who was a very respectable real estate guy, owned all these apartment buildings that have now kind of become slums, but they've like made fortunes out of it. And the eldest sister, Victoria, played by Mary Morris, who we will talk about at length in a minute, is kind of like the the matriarch of the family, although she's a spinster. Before we get into the story. All the stuff that we now know from this movie and the research that we've done, the director, Charles Vidor, who did Gilda and some other noir films, why haven't we heard about this this film? It's just as good as some of those other noir films that he put out in the 40s. I mean, we've tried digging up some research on this and why it was kind of like shoveled away. The only thing that I saw is that they had made these massive amounts of films in a three-year period over at Paramount that just kind of got lost in the shuffle, and this appears to be one of them. Do you have any other information about that, or you have the same conclusion? Yeah, essentially the same conclusion. I mean, if, if you look at the film, it didn't have any major stars for its day. 
you know, Mary Morris and Anne Reverie were were reprising their roles from the play. From they, the play, they played the uh, they played the parts on, on Broadway. These were uh, they. I think this was both of their first films. And, and in Mary Morris's case, it was her only film. Yeah, she never made and like rave reviews. You could see if you look back at old advertisements that the Paramount machine was busy at work building her up as like the like a female Boris Karloff. I mean, I totally got those vibes. This woman's performance is on par with some of the most frightening performances I've, I've seen from the Universal Horror Days, from from the the Monster House. I mean, the way they even light her, they light her from below in like a Dutch position, so she has different lighting than all the other characters. It gives her this very sinister look. She may as well be Boris Karloff in The Old House or Bela Lugosi in Dracula. Like, it is amazing performance, an amazing way that they handle her performance. And this is from a advertisement from the release of the film. The tagline for the film was, the female of the species is more deadly than the male. And they say, Frankenstein, Dracula, and all other male monsters are sissies compared to Victor- Victoria Van Brett. As this character, Mary Morris, without trick makeup or other artifacts, is the deadliest menace the screen has yet portrayed. I, I would not disagree with that. I mean, 1934... You've got kind of like what we were talking about in Freaks. You have the Glamour Factory over at MGM. So you've got all of these Busby Berkeley and all these amazing like performance pieces that they're doing, musicals. Then you've got Universal doing the Monster House. This fits somewhere in between. It's more of like a character piece. It's since it's based off a play. I wouldn't call it a horror. I would say it's more of like a thriller or a, a drama. I mean, thrillers really weren't quite a thing back then. Like, they were kind of just mixed in with a drama. You didn't have psychological thrillers more into, like, the 40s and the war scene. You had a few, but people weren't seeing them. They weren't attracting audiences. And from all indications, this did not really attract an audience either, despite that amazing marketing that you just brought up. Yeah, it's, like I was saying, it just, it it didn't have any huge major stars that went on to do other things that they were known for. And and th- I think it just kind of got lost. You know, it's just, it was just another movie that got made. It didn't really fit really specifically tightly into any one genre. And I think it's just one that got lost. You know, Paramount lost the rights to it at some point and it, it was universal that had control of it and they just put it with TV. And so I think it just Paramount, it's home studio didn't have control of it anymore. It just kind of ended up getting lost. I mean, we, we were kind of talking about that with Freaks, too. And we were also talking about that way with Nosferatu. If it wasn't for bootleg versions or discovered versions of those films, mm-hmm. they would not have the gravity today. So this is the kind of film because, yeah, in 1959, Paramount sold a whole catalog of films to Universal who put it into syndication. So from like 1959 till now, you would only see this on a syndicated TV run. So like a late night movie on some public access cable station or some local affiliate in New York, like this would be something that would play on that. Or like you said, a handful of film festivals, God knows where. So before we get into the the actual story, because it moves really quickly, let's talk about the cast really fast. First of all, Mary Morris, 
as Victoria Van Brett. I mean, maybe this was a good film for her to maybe go out on and not pursue a future film career. At this time, we were talking about this, she had a very established stage career. This is still 1934. Talking pictures are still relatively young, and they're still figuring out what to do with who. They're signing actors to contracts that are pretty much like ironclad. They're not making the kind of money that you would see in the future. It's a really interesting business to be in. If you're an established stage actor that knows where your next job is, this might not be the industry for you. You've already got a craft that you've developed for years. Why change it? That's my guess. Yeah, and if you look at like the history of cinema, like we have the summer blockbuster, right? And when when is theater's time? Theater's big runtime is is winter. Yeah. So a lot of actors on the stage would do movies like silent pictures during the summertime. Like I, I remember reading that uh, with the earliest days of film, you know, those those like little five minute Nickelodeon films, um, stage actors would star in those and they would get some money for the summer during that when they weren't doing anything as far as stage work goes. And it was fine because they weren't they weren't credited and it was kind of seen as as slumming it a little bit. Like I remember uh, in, in The Mummy, Zeddy Johan was yeah. the female lead in that film, you know, very famous Hungarian stage actress. And she's quoted as saying at one point she had more respect for a prostitute than a Hollywood actress. <laughs> and she made three films. So for, for all we know, Mary Morris could have had similar feelings. I mean, she's, she was a great actress. She does well in this part, but she ultimately could have just said, you know what? And I'm, I'm a stage actress, you know, this, that's where I'm at home. And maybe she didn't like offers that were presented to her. Maybe she felt like they were trying to lock her into a character and she wanted to have more of a, you know, a wider palette as far as what she played. Exactly. I mean, and we've all heard the stories of Boris Karloff. There's an amazing documentary right now on Shudder about Boris Karloff. And in a sense, Lugosi as well, when you watch Ed Wood and know about his story, where they really just wanted to lock these characters in. And when the popularity of a Frankenstein or a Dracula fades away, no one wants to use a Karloff or Lugosi anymore. So maybe she saw the writing on the wall, plus she's a woman in the 30s. Like, also, middle-aged, maybe, I think you said she was in her late 30s when she made this. And she's playing a, uh, she's playing a woman in her 60s. So obviously, if she's in her late 30s, according to Hollywood standards, even now, she's outdated. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is you, you look at some of the older advertisements for the film, and they were pushing this female star you know, what they hoped would become this this next big thing, but they weren't doing it from the sex appeal angle, which is what they almost always did with female stars back in those days. Yeah, a character like this would have played like the, the mother for five minutes or something. A character like this wouldn't lead a film. But let alone be, be, be the subject of such heavy marketing. Yeah, she's all over the posters. You don't barely see any of the other characters. So let's talk about the other characters. So Anne Reverie, who plays Caroline who is kind of like the more timid spinster sister who has pretty much spent her life under the shadow of this dominant sister, Victoria. Now, she's been in other things. She was in Gentleman's Agreement. She was in National Velvet. She actually had a pretty established career. Yeah. The heartbreaking one for me is actually like our protagonist female, and that is Evelyn Venable, who plays Anne Darrow, the main character. Now, she was in... 
Death Takes a Holiday, which is the original version of Meet Joe Black, and she was the lead in that. She only did a few pictures. She only did a handful of pictures. So she's the lead in this. She's the lead in that just a few years later. And then like two years after that, she's done. I don't know much of her history, but the first time she appeared on screen, I know I'd seen her before. And I said, she is absolutely captivating. Who is this? And then I looked it up like, oh, it's it's this this actress. And she's amazing. The rest of the cast, again, this is a predominantly female-driven cast in 1934. So unless you're watching like uh, Philadelphia Story or one of those kind of like slapstick comedies from back in the day where like Katherine Hepburn would be running the show or something like that, you didn't see a female cast as strong as in this film. The males are practically betas. They're practically mm-hmm. cucks, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, um, and yeah, I, I, I love her. She she looks like Thora Birch. You know, she's beautiful. I get, I get those vibes. Like, yeah. it's a soft beauty that in those days, the jagged-edged beauties seemed to be the ones that were really kind of on posters and running these films. Marlena Dietrich and and all these, like, very kind of sharp-looking women. This woman has very soft features. I really, really loved her performance. And I loved her look, and I loved her character, because let's kind of start into the story now. Well, one, one quick little side note here. Um, do you know what voice she provided? Oh, I'm curious. What? She did the voice of the Blue Fairy in 1940 for Walt Disney's Pinocchio. Okay, if I closed my eyes watching that movie, I could have told you yes, that. I, I, I can hear it right now. Yes, yes. So had it, she had a good career. It just it didn't. It was just short. Just short, yeah. And, and, and listeners, I don't freak out about movies as much as I freaked out about this one. So we're going to really cover this at the end. But as excited as both Mikey and I are talking about this film, you should be as excited as well. You got something to say. Yeah, she retired in 1943. From acting, she resumed studies at UCLA and became a faculty member in the theater. So she was just done. Yeah, she just she's educated woman and just was like had this. Now she's she's an academic. That's great. Wow. Okay. So that's just fascinating. I am so excited that we are learning about this. Now the uh, male characters. There's there's really three. The first one is Rip Van Barrett, who we'll get into the story in a second. He is like our male protagonist, played by Kent Taylor. He had an okay career throughout like the 40s and 50s. It looked like he wound up ending up making some like kind of schlocky sexploitation films in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> I didn't no, know that. Really. Nothing wrong with that. You got to earn a buck. And then you have Colin Tapley as Dr. John Lucas, who's like the secondary male character in this film. And he didn't really have a whole lot on his um, IMDb page either. He, he had a handful of stuff. Through the 60s, a lot of TV, a lot of bit parts, mostly parts like this. Looks like he mostly played like that side character, the side piece, so to speak. (laughs) Oh, and then we have my favorite. I'm going to let you say this one because it's my favorite name, too. We have Sir Guy Standing. Sir Guy Standing. He plays Mortimer Neff, who is like the family um, attorney who's handling all of like their accounts and their estates. So he's like the third main character. And it's interesting because this, you can tell this is based off of a play. It has like a six piece main ensemble with some side characters, mostly servants running around. Like it's very traditionally set up of like protagonist, your, your, your antagonist. And then you're like two side characters are supporting very, very common in, in theatrical writing. 
So let's kick off with how this starts off. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, listeners, that we are not going to spoil the ending of this film. You're going to have to work for it. I'll tell you where to find it at the end. But we are going to come to a stopping point so as to not spoil the suspense because there is suspense in this movie, Mikey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, um, it, it's one of those films that when the suspense hits, it literally gave me anxiety. I had anxiety watching this movie, yes. and it, it blew my mind because it was 1934 and minimally produced. It's all in one location. It's all in one big house, like it would be in a play. Yeah, it's, it's filmed very stagey, which it, it actually works in the movie. Yeah, it works great. So how we start off is we start off with a wedding. So we get a little bit of side history as we roll through the credits and into the opening scene. And let's talk about these credits really fast. There are some amazing dissolves and fades between the credit sequence. It's the earliest example I can think of. I'm not as you know educated in film history as you are, but there'll be like a title card and then like a credit card of like the first group of characters. And then they'll the letters will tumble off the screen and you'll see the face of a character. Mostly it's Victoria you're seeing. Or you will see a set of doors open and close to reveal the next title card. Yeah. Pretty amazing for 1934. Like they are getting you excited for this film during the opening title sequence. Well, and they're they're introducing this 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 character you know, because you're seeing shots of her face just glaring at you. That's like how the how that's like the first thing you see. And the claustrophobia of the set and the eventually uh, the eventual turning point, the MacGuffin, I might say, of of what the double door actually means. Mm -hmm. So we start off with a wedding day. The story goes is that Rip Van Brett, played by Kent Taylor, is marrying Anne Darrow, played by Evelyn Venable. Now. He is the half-brother of the two spinster sisters. So their mother died, and their real estate magnet father took a second wife, and that's who had Rip. So Rip is a half-brother. Now, these two spinster sisters have a little bit of resentment for Rick, especially for his mother, who has since passed on, because he now is kind of like the heir to everything because he is the male but he doesn't share the same kind of respect or affinity for the properties and for the business as his sisters do because he's like second generation and he's much, much younger than them, like probably at least 15, 20 years younger than them. His oldest sister, Victoria, is the executive of the will. Like she, she has full control over everything. Of the estate. Of the estate, everything. And she makes a comment at one point where she, like just so that you see how much control she has one of her sisters uh, says, "You know, are you are you not going to give her the necklace? It's in his mother's will that it get that she, that you know he his wife gets it." And she says, "Oh well, Rip hasn't seen his mother's will. Yeah, he has no idea. He just assumes that he's getting like equal shares of everything. Apparently, this woman, Victoria, does not approve of this young lady. She calls her one step above a servant." Because she's a nurse. She's and a nurse. The interesting thing about the film is you find out you you find out who who everyone is basically through gossip. 
like the film, the film, the year the film takes place is 1910. And that's introduced when you see the date on a limousine's license plate. Yeah. And excellent way to set it up. Everybody talking about the family. So you get a setup of the family, like people outside observing the wedding party as they're going into this big mansion. And, and then people in the house gathering around, walking around and talking about the bride and groom and saying, Oh, well, you know, Victoria was, was none too happy that her brother's marrying a nurse. I mean, it's almost like a modern take on the Greek chorus. You know, you've got like these really non-important and non-essential characters who are giving you all the setup that you need if you're paying attention and if you're listening to get that story going. What a brilliant way to get this movie done in an hour and 15. Because if this was a modern movie, they would spend at least 30 minutes just setting up that much. The pace is what makes this movie even better. I mean, how many thrillers have we seen that just slog through the opening exposition to get to that exciting second act? And by the time it comes, you're like, I wasn't paying attention to what that guy said in the first act because it was so boring. You know, this doesn't do that. It's like, okay, let's get going. We got plenty of stuff to film. We right off the bat know what kind of person Victoria is. We get to see the depths of how deep she's going to go into this, this monstrous personality a little bit later. But instantly, she is giving instructions to essentially ruin her brother's wedding. Yeah. The first thing that we see is Victoria. It's pretty apparent she's not joining the wedding party. She's up in, in the, the study. She's not dressed for it. She's not dressed for it. Um, her sister, Caroline, is coming in and is just so excited about everything. And servants are coming in with wedding gifts. And Victoria is just, just bossing everyone around. And being a, a real Debbie Downer, I'll call it. And at one point, you see that she's, you re, like for me, I realized, okay, she's, she's maybe a little aggressive against the wedding, but then I was shocked when you hear the wedding march play and she's upstairs. She's nowhere near, near the area that the wedding's taking place in the house. And then she hears the wedding march and she says, hey, who approved them to play that organ? Go, go stop them right now. And so she stops the wedding march in the middle of the bride walking down the aisle. Who told him to play? I believe the Reverend Dr. Loring suggested. Is that clergyman master in this house? Lock the keyboard of the organ and bring the key to me at once. Very good, madam. The organ didn't break down. Somebody did it. Do you suppose? It like she's got this thing out for this bride, so she orders the family organ to not only be stopped but to be closed and locked, and to have them bring her the key. So there's no way they could actually continue with it. Mm -hmm. Not only that, she has started to tell the servants to start putting all the wedding gifts that were for the bride and groom in another room, in her room, in, in her, her closet. room, in her closet. We'll get to that in a second. But the most important thing is the attorney, this Mortimer Neft guy, comes out with this box that has a string of pearls, and there's a story behind the pearls. Apparently, him and their father, before he passed away, year by year, were collecting the most perfect pearls that they could find, and they would have brandy and sit in the study and talk about these pearls as they were making this long, long necklace that was meant or the bride of Rip, eventually. I am making a new will, Neff. 
All of Rip's share is to go to the list of hospitals mentioned in the old will. Oh. I'll take charge of them. Yes, yes, quite so. Uh, no reason at all why I shouldn't hand them over to you. The uh, customary receipt, ma'am. We had them in storage since 1885. The year Rip's mother died. They belong to my mother, not to Rip's. I remember how delighted Mr. Van Brett was every time one of our agents found another pearl of the right size and color. And then we'd both sit down and examine the new Van Brett pearl over a glass of port or brandy. He told me a great deal about his life. He told me how the noise on Fifth Avenue prevented him from sleeping. That's why he built that mysterious sleeping room. Oh, but... Yeah. In the end, it's a beautiful, lustrous, long, long strand of pearls that's worth half a million dollars in 1910 currency. Yeah, and Victoria receives this this necklace, and at first, you know, they're they're like, "Hey, we need, we where's Rip? We need to give this to we need to give this to him because it's it was willed to his bride." And Victoria says, "Oh, you can give it to me," and he's like, "Well, of course, I have no reason not, not to give it to you." So he gives it to her, and Victoria promptly tells her sister, "These were my mother's; they should have gone to me." I'm not giving them to her. She decides to withhold this, this gift. She from, swaps them out with just the regular string of pearls around her well, neck. It's her not, house pearls. Yeah. It's, it's not even her house pearls. It's below that. It's, um, uh, there's a line where she's asked, asked her sister, what happened to that cheap necklace that you got one of the staff? And she's like, well, you wouldn't let me give it to her. So it's over in that drawer. And she's like, give it to me. And she swaps out for like, basically something that her sister tried to give one of the maids as a gift. So like you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not even real pearls. So it just in that first like opening 10 minutes, you get an idea of just how terrifyingly controlling and manipulative this sister is. Now your heart breaks for Caroline because she has this line that she's like, well, I'm 42 and I'm probably won't be married. So this wedding is very important to me for Rip because this will be the closest thing I'll ever get to a wedding of my own, which leads you to wonder has she been in this house for 42 years under the thumb of her older sister? Yeah, and, and they we find out. Yes, she has. She makes reference to Victoria spoiling things between her and, and one of her bows. Yeah. You know, she's like, well, you ruined things for me and my man, and you have no idea how much that, that ruined my life. Don't do this to Rip. Or she's like pleading with her, like, you ruined my life. Yeah, that's fine. My life is ruined. Don't ruin theirs. And she's obviously mentally broken. Like her sister has broken her. She just bends over and takes whatever her sister gives her and then cries and then hides and just is she's mentally broken. That's the first 10 minutes. I'm like, oh my God, the suspense and my emotions for this character are just so overwhelming right now. And it just keeps going. Mm -hmm. So they proceed with this silent wedding with no music. Because I think in some way, Victoria thought that, like, well, they're not going to have a wedding without music. But sure enough, mm -hmm. Rip and Anne come running up the stairs. They've just been married. They're happy as all can be. And that just adds to Victoria's anger about the situation. Yeah, she so they, they come into the to the study where all the wedding gifts were. And one table has been moved to Victoria's closet. And they're looking at their wedding gifts. Um, she brings up the necklace to Victoria when Victoria comes in. And then Rip goes off somewhere. Victoria proceeds to tell the bride who's looking at her wedding gifts, those gifts are not yours. They are, they are mine because they are gifts from my friends, from people I've known in my life. 
So they are not for you, and I am having them moved to my room. Oh, Miss Van Brett, there's plenty of room in the closet off Rip's dressing room. I should like to have our presents put there. These are not your presents. Not ours? Not yours. They've come from friends of the Van Brett's. As head of this house, I shall take charge of them. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But here's a part that I think really gets under uh, Victoria's nerves. You can see that Anne is sad about it, but you can also see her true character because in her mind, oh, well, they're just gifts. I love Rip, and Rip is, is who I want to be with. It's not about money. And Victoria's whole perception is that anyone that comes into the family just wants their money. Right, and and Victoria, you know, doesn't doesn't like this girl. You know that Victoria knows that that she really does love Rip because there's a line where she's talking to the family attorney where she's like, you know, didn't you try to buy her off? And she's like, yes, I tried to pay her off, but she didn't want money. She really loves Rip. She really loves this guy. And so Rip comes back. They ask for the necklace because he's like, oh yeah, I need, I, you know, I want my necklace for, for my bride. She wants to see her. She wants to see it with her dress and they give her the box with the, with the fake in it. Evelyn, she immediately notices. Yeah, she knows what it is. She knows what it is. And then Rip is the one that actually says something. He's like, hey, the, this, these are nothing. And then Victoria's like, oh, well, I had them put somewhere safe because I didn't want them to get to get uh, stolen or By lost the in mayhem. And in reality, they're just in the desk drawer. And she, she gets pissed off again because Anne just looks at them and goes, they're perfect. They're just the length I like. Again, yeah. proving I don't care about the material things. This is my wedding gift from you, and I love it, even if it's not real. So they run off to their honeymoon, and as they are going into their car outside, Caroline goes and opens the shutters to the window so she can see them go to their car and watch the people throw rice at them. Victoria, of course, you know, yells at her, says they, they don't care about you. They don't, they don't, you don't mean enough to them to say goodbye. And there, there's a scene right before this where she has caught the wedding bouquet. And, you know, there's this talk that maybe she'll get married, you know, because one of the maids said, oh, so I know of another woman that got married in her 60s and you're only 42. Maybe there's hope for you. So she catches the bouquet. You kind of get that this is like a glimmer of hope for her and makes her happy. And then she shows him to her sister. She's like, Victoria, look, I cut the bouquet. And you just see from behind the chair, her crooked finger come out and point to the fireplace. <laughs> and she makes her sister throw the wedding bouquet in the fireplace and then yells at her when she has a window open to wave her brother goodbye. It's crazy. Very it's crazy. cruel. Makes you say, like, your heart breaks for her. I mean, and, like, this could be considered, like, a feminine horror film. Like, if guys and, and, and their, their kids and their dates were going to Frankenstein to be scared by a monster, this would obviously scare a man, but this would infuriate a bride or infuriate someone. It would make them think, like, oh, my God, my mother-in-law is just like this. Like, I can see... Yeah. Those wheels turning in the audience's minds when they're watching this movie. So there is there is another character, um, Colin Tapley, played Dr. John Lucas, who is a friend of the bride and groom. And there has been some talk that he was in love with Anne, but Anne fell in love with Rip and married him instead. But they're all three friends, so it kind of creates this interesting dynamic where you wonder, well, how serious were Anne and, and the doctor... John Lucas prior to this. Yeah, I mean, and and I don't know. I, I saw this as a very innocent relationship. I yeah. Like, when you first start watching it, you're like, would this be, will this be a love triangle situation? 
in my mind, I gave the movie the benefit of the doubt and saying that it's too smart to throw in a cheap trick like that. It'll just take the focus away from the terror of, of Victoria. And I was yeah. right. But Victoria uses that to her advantage a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So Anne and Rip go on their honeymoon. And while they're away, Victoria has ordered the attorney to change the will that very day to exclude Rip from any inheritance entirely. And Rip does not know about this at all. Right. All Rip knows, and he makes reference to this, that that he has no control over any of his own money. He just gets what, like, he essentially gets, like, an allowance that Victoria gives him. And so he, he doesn't really have control over his own life. He's kind of held captive in his own way through money by his sister. And they're on their honeymoon, and they get a telegram from Victoria saying, you need to come back right this minute to tend to family business. And Rip has already made it pretty clear that he's not really interested in the, in the family business, or he makes it clear to her when he gets back three weeks early from his, uh, from his honeymoon. And of course, Anne is gracious and, you know, we were coming back in three weeks anyway. It's fine. We, we can, we can enjoy each other's company as well as uh, at home as we can here. And so Victoria instantly puts Rip to work. And he makes it pretty clear, I, I don't really care about the real estate business. It's just a bunch of slums. We need to just get rid of them. And Victoria gives a speech about she- You never sell. Yeah, and that the people storming the streets are liquid gold. Yeah. It, 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 it reminded me of like a Citizen Kane type moment. And this is a few years before Citizen Kane. That I kind of like this detachment from humanity. And you're just looking at- the dollar signs in the streets and the dollar signs around you. Like she really has no appreciation for the beauty of anything around her. It's all about value. And that's what kind of drives her. And it drives her with people too. With the thing with Rip is that even though he feels like he's his own man, that he's a man's man, he kind of folds almost instantly to his sister. And it's all arranged because her whole point is to get Anne to leave Rip because she doesn't think that Rip will ever leave her. So she makes Anne's life a living nightmare. First of all, Rip and her were supposed to get their own little house upstate. And she's like, no, I need you here. We've gotten a room for you here so you can tend to the business. You can't tend to the business or the house affairs upstate. You have to be here. It's your turn to take care of me because I've spent your entire life taking care of you. She guilts him and gaslights him and he falls for it instantly. Yeah, he 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 just he accepts that that's the way it is. And sweet Anne, she loves him, so she just goes along with it. And so it kind of cuts to three months later, where he comes into the office and he's like, "Listen, we need to hire an agent to take care of these affairs because I haven't seen my wife in three months, and she's in the same house. Like Victoria is running him ragged." just to keep him away from Anne. Now, this is where our doctor friend kind of comes back in. She's lonely, and she is isolated in this house. Victoria won't let her go into any of the rooms. I mean, there's this big, beautiful sitting room, and she tells Anne that she can't sit in the sitting room. Yep, it's, it's, for, it's for business affairs and people expressly invited. Yeah. And she makes it very clear she is, she is neither. She is not invited, and she is not business-minded, so she's not invited into this room where the, the shutters and the windows are always closed. 
So what we find out then is that Anne has been kind of hanging out with the doctor, her old, I guess her old boss, so to speak. We find out a little bit more that he really did like her, and it causes a lot of concern from, from Victoria and Caroline, but Rip's pretty cool with it because he trusts his wife, and he's friendly enough with the doctor to be like, it's, it's harmless. Like, he, he totally thinks it's yeah. harmless. Yeah, and she, she goes to see him. She goes to see him at his apartment, which in, in 1910, a woman being unchaperoned and married and married with a man alone in his apartment was was not viewed. People use their imaginations. It, it was obvious that they were having an affair, right? You just you didn't do that. You know, aside from even if you weren't doing anything just in polite society, you did not do that. But she does it because she's desperate. You know, she needs to know, you know, she's like, I, I love my husband. She's just going to him as a friend for help, you know, because she she wants somebody to understand her and and give her advice. And he's like, you know, she she says my husband's worth fighting for. And the doctor's like, well, then fight for him. Exactly. And he actually even warned her on her wedding day. He was like, I've been friends with this family for years. Good luck handling this lady. He even says, I'll give you six months. Like he gives her like a time frame before he thinks Victoria is going to break her. Mm-hmm. Now, Victoria knows that she has at least gone to visit this guy. So the wheels start turning because she feels that the only thing that Anne could ever possibly do to break her and rip up is if she had an affair or some kind of infidelity. Before we get into the third act, which really revolves around this point, we forgot to mention the title of the movie and what it refers to. Double Door, yes. Fill us in. So the Double Door refers to a safe that is in the study that only Victoria and Caroline know about. Now, the reason Caroline knows about this is because Victoria has locked her in the safe as punishment for misbehaving or not following her orders. And Caroline is terrified that she is going to be locked in there again. So at one point, when they are exchanging the pearls, and they're, they're telling that great story about her father and, 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 uh, and his friend looking at each pearl and designing this, this necklace with these pearls that match perfectly over Brandy, he mentions... You know, your dad had a, a secret room built, didn't he? A sleeping room that was soundproof because he couldn't stand the noise on Fifth Avenue. And Victoria says, no, no such room existed. And he just acknowledges, okay, well, you know, we had been drinking, we'd been doing brandy, so probably I'm just remembering wrong. But Victoria has had it turned into a safety keeper valuables and used it to punish her sister, to terrify her into being submissive to her. I mean, she's essentially brainwashing and programming her the way that prisoners of war were brainwashed and, and programmed. Yeah. It, it, it's really, really heartbreaking. So that's a reference to the double door. It's going to pop up later, trust me. As we've kind of gotten to this breaking point, Rip has really just had enough with everything, and he full-on tells Victoria, look, I don't give a shit about the money. I don't give a shit about the property. I just love this woman. And we're going to be out of here tomorrow. Yeah, because um, uh, Anne, Anne tells him, you know, let's just make a clean break of this. You're, you're smart. You're talented. You can, you can make it on your own. We and, don't need her money. Yeah, and there's an understanding that is established between them. And this is one of my favorite points in the film. Rip is telling her this story about when he was a boy, when he was seven and their dad died. 
and it's told in flashbacks, which I I don't I don't recall seeing very often in in older movies like this, where there's like a a flashback scene being shown while the character's narrating it. I thought that was a, a pretty unique thing to see in a movie this old. But he's telling his wife, "Yeah, my my sister dragged me down." to the parlor where our father's body was lying in state and made me touch him. She put my my hand in his cold, dead one. And told him and tells her younger brother, father is always watching you. He can see everything you're doing and you must live your life to honor him. When I was seven, he died. The day of his funeral, Victoria led me down to the drawing room where he lay. took my hand and made me put it in his cold hand. And there she made me promise to keep him in mind always and to do all the things he'd always wanted me to do. Most of them she made up because it pleased her. I know that now. She told me he was able to watch me from the place he'd gone. I know what was best for him, so you have to listen to me. Those flashbacks, using dissolved transitions in 1934 for our flashback, yeah, I, I can't think of earlier examples. I'm not saying that there aren't any. I've seen some in silent films, but they were more of like dissolved transitions to like the future or the past. It wasn't kind of jumping back and forth. You know, it was like mm-hmm. a different kind of linear progression. Yeah. And and so Rip Rip is finally opening up to his wife and his wife says, why didn't you tell me this before? How scared you were of your sister, you know, all this stuff. And his, his response is that, you know, he wanted his wife to look up to him and respect him and that he didn't think she would do that if she knew that he was kind of weak. So he he has this vulnerable moment where what with his wife. And again, Anne, who is like, you know, perfect, just yeah, basically she's, the best. <laughs> she's like, she's like, thank you for telling me this. And that's when she goes, you know what? You're, you're better than this. We can make a break on our own. We don't need her money. Let's just get out of this. You hate this house. You hate the business. And he he agrees to it. So this is where it's one of those films like where the suspense builds is like, who's got the upper hand? Like you never really know who's got the upper hand. You know, that Anne is like, she's starting to play dirty. She's starting to play back because she's talked to the doctor. She thinks she's figured out how to play the game with Victoria. And and you have that scene right after she, she gets through to her husband rip where she's there in the study and she opens the windows. She opens the shutters and opens the window and just has this gleam in her eye and then goes over, like, just leaves the room. But first, she calls the doctor. And why does she do that? So she calls the doctor to tell him that she's not invited to dinner because there isn't an equal amount of men and women guests at the table. So it'd be an unbalanced table. So she's had a table set up in her room so she can dine alone. Victoria's done this. Victoria's Victoria's done this. And she's told everyone, oh, Anne has a headache. You know, and so she invites the doctor to dinner, thinking that she's like, just laid her ace on the table. She's going to like be, oh, you can't control me. You can't control Rip. I'm inviting my friend and I'm coming down to dinner. You can't tell me what to do. What we don't know is that Victoria has kind of played a royal flush on this hand. She's planted seeds of doubt in Rip's mind that Anne is having an affair with the doctor. 
He's like, no, no, he just goes to see her in the park and blah, blah, blah. So he even says, honey, you haven't been going to his apartment, have you? Uh, of course not, I haven't, because she's so scared of like, you know, telling the truth right. at that moment because Victoria's there. She's just trying to not turn it into something bigger. Yeah, and and she also, I mean, I think part of her is saying, you know, it's it's my me and my husband's personal affairs are not her business. We don't want Victoria listening to this conversation. Right. So she, you know, and 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 Rip, you know, he he's a good guy. He trusts his wife. He when he finds out she's been seeing the doctor, his first question is, oh. How is he? How is he? He's you know, like, like, oh, cool. I trust my wife. But it's not until Victoria starts putting these seeds of doubt in his head that you you kind of think he might think there's something to this. Anne comes down and, and says, hey, I'm, I'm coming to dinner. I don't have a headache. You were mistaken. I've never felt better. And I've balanced the table by inviting one of me and my friend's husband's friends. And you can tell Victoria is like seething. She is pissed. So we find out like after dinner's over, Everyone's trying to leave, but Victoria's trying to keep a few of the people there. She's trying to keep the lawyer there, and she's trying to keep the doctor there. And we really don't know why. They're like, why isn't people going home? It's been so late. And we hear the servants talking about this again. Again, we are hearing exposition through this mm-hmm. Greek chorus of servants in the kitchen. Who are all bashing her. They're all like- oh, They all hate of, her. <laughs> they're all talking bad about her. And then like the, the head maid comes in and is like, no, do not talk bad about the mistress of the house. Just yeah. don't. But- they do. There's a and, knock on the door. Yeah, and one of the maids, uh, they answer the door, and they're like, hey, it's pretty late, man. He's like, oh, no, Miss Victoria is expecting me. The guy hands the servant a card. He brings the card to Victoria in the the parlor where they're having brandy and coffee or whatever, and she's like, oh, excuse me. She brings this guy in. The lawyer and the doctor are like, we got to go. We're, we're, it's late. And the doctor is like, I've got a, an operation in Pittsburgh tomorrow. I got to catch a train. 5 a.m., yeah. She's like, I encourage you that you stay for a few more minutes. Oh, yeah. She, she, she doesn't, she's, she's not even polite about it. She just is like, no, you're staying. She brings everyone into the parlor. And the guy that she's brought into the office or into the parlor turns out to be a private detective who's been trailing Anne for like the last two months. So she was playing this, this long game way before anything. Mm-hmm. She had this planned so far out. And of course, Anne and the doctor are like kind of sweating because like, oh shit, if this guy was following you, then they know that you came to my apartment today. And so the detective proceeds to go, on September 3rd, she met the doctor in the park. And then October 1st, she met him in the park. And then today at noon, unaccompanied, she walked into his apartment and was there for an hour. The cool part about this is like Victoria thinks she's like, you know, check, mate, I got you. Rip, however, is a cool guy <laughs> and is like, you know what? I still believe my wife and I believe my friend, this guy. Yeah, we've had our problems in the past, mm-hmm. but this isn't going to work on me. And the fact that you even tried to do this is the last straw. Yeah. We're leaving. Yeah. I mean, he, he just, he just asks her, he just says, were you in his apartment? And she said, yes, I was. And I'm sorry, I did lie, but I was just, I was so nervous about it. And it's just none of anybody's business. And, and you know, and he, he, he trusts her, he believes her. And so uh, they have, they have their little argument. Rip kind of grows a pair, tells his sister, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm out. So this is where things turn even more sinister. We've gone from family drama to Edgar Allan Poe, essentially. Yes. So, and and here's the thing. 
there is a lot like our, my, my fiance was watching this film with us. And during the scene, she's like, why would she trust this lady? Why would she do this? I get it. I wouldn't do it either, but I also didn't question it. But the fact that she questioned it because she's smart enough to not do this as, as she's leaving the house, Victoria has shut and locked all the doors in the sitting room where the double door is. And she said, Anne, don't you want your pearls? And Anne, you get the feeling Anne's not. She's like, Anne's like, we can get them later. And she's like, if you want them, just take them. They're yours. It's not worth this fuss. And, and Victoria, you know, she thinks maybe, and Anne, I think wants to see the best in everyone. Like Anne makes a statement in the film to the doctor where she's like, well, she can try, but she doesn't, she, she will have underestimated my resolve that I am determined to make her like me. And so, you know, you get the idea that she just doesn't want to create a fuss on anything. So she's, she's just, Victoria says, come, come to the safe and, and we'll get this, we'll get the, the pearls. It almost sounds, Anne almost thinks that maybe it's like an olive branch yeah. or something. Yeah. And then Anne, you know, and Anne's kind of looking around a little nervous, like when Victoria locks all the doors. And turns the lights down. <laughs> turns the lights down and explains, no one knows about this room, this soundproof room. And only I know the combination. <laughs> yes. So, and and you you kind of, even when they are walking in, you question because Victoria bothers to tell her there's three steps. So, of course, Anne kind of goes in first to this dark, unlit safe, and she takes that first step, and Victoria pushes her in and shuts the door behind her and locks it. However... Before the soundproof door can actually shut, Anne screams loud enough for Caroline to hear it in the other room. So prior to this as well, Victoria has been taunting Caroline, saying she's going to lock her in the in the room and telling her that she shut the vents. So essentially it's air it's airtight at this point. So that is going through your head when the lock combination spins and you know that Anne is locked in there because you know, it's not just a, Oh, well she's got time. She's got limited time. She, you know, there, there is like a countdown going in your head, like how long before the oxygen runs out. But Caroline has heard the scream and comes to try to get into the room, but it's locked. It's locked. And she kind of knows she, she, she suspects that Victoria's done this. And this is an interesting genre shift. There's so many genre shifts in this hour and 15 minute long movie because after it turns from this Edgar Allan Poe kind of like horror moment, it turns into almost a police procedural. It's Mm -hmm. now... Psychological thriller almost. It's now these guys return to the house. Where's Anne? Oh, she went downstairs. She probably ran off with the doctor. And here's the thing. Victoria's desperate now, so she's not thinking very straight how she was so calculated before the entire movie, she this was a last-minute decision. This was a, a desperation thing. Grasping at the air. So now her thoughts are not as well calculated. She really is just kind of playing by ear on this one as they start looking for her. No one really believes that Victoria doesn't know what happened. And she's being very standoffish about like Caroline. It's like, well, we'll ask Caroline. No, no, Caroline's not feeling well. You can't talk to her. I already talked to her and she Car- said nothing. Caroline yeah. saw Anne's bag in the so, hallway. So Caroline knows that, that she's in there, but, but 
Victoria's told her, no, you're having one of your nightmares. She's gaslighting her. She's convincing her. You're crazy. You don't know what you saw. You've always had nightmares. The door wasn't locked. You're just weak and you couldn't open it because you were half asleep. And so like you're in hysterical like a, in an Agatha Christie kind of moment where they get all the characters in the same room and they're about to deconstruct what really happened and who did what. We're not telling you anymore because that's a spoiler. You've got to watch this movie and we'll tell you how at the end. So we just kind of sped through that. There's so much more to it, but I'm telling you folks, this movie is a must see. Mikey, what was your favorite part of this film? You know, the, the fa- my favorite part of the film, I, I think when, when Rip opens up to his wife for the first time and really admits that he is vulnerable, that he is, you know, scared of his sister, you know, and just tells his wife, you know, I, I don't have it together. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not this perfect guy that you thought you, you married. And, and I was afraid that you weren't going to look up to me and I wanted you to look up to me. And there, I, I really liked that moment just because I, I think it lets you really see how much they really love each other in the movie. It's a very sweet moment. Yeah, it's great. And the, the other moment is, is like, it's just with the safe, like, man, I, I seriously, I felt it in my stomach, the anxiety. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is a pre-code film. So, you know, anything can happen. They would have no scruples about just ending the movie with her in the safe. And you really don't know what's going to happen. My favorite part of this movie is anytime we are in either a three quarter or close up shot of Victoria and the way they light her and especially her eyes as she has this piercing gaze. It almost reminds me of like when Hannibal Lecter stares at Clarice through the glass and they just close in on those eyes and they're kind of like lifeless, but at the same time piercing Oh God, every time they went to that shot and they do it a few times, I was like, oh, this is an amazing movie. Just these shots alone of this performance, man, I could watch that all day. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is a great one. And the, the movie really doesn't have any music in it. It opens with a, a very famous classical piece, the credits bursting through a pair of double doors and box toccata and fugue in D minor. If I if I said that right. It's just got some great classical pieces. Um, in fact, one of the pieces is actually in Silence of the Lambs. It's playing when Hannibal Lecter is in the jail cell in that building when they're about to deliver him the pork chops or the lamb chops. Oh, okay. It's, yeah, I it's, remember that now. It's playing when he's getting the lamb chops and he's about to uh, tear the face off the guy and disembowel Charles Napier and hang him up. So yes, to make that connection that like I've been comparing her to a Hannibal Lecter and to know that that song is actually in Silence of the Lambs, fantastic. This was, um, like you said, the only film that Mary Morris did. It was the first film for Anne Reverie, and like we said, she had a pretty established career from then on. And this is one of the interesting things that we talked about with the, uh, the MCA Universal takeover of these films. So this film was one of over 700 Paramount productions that was made between 1929 and 1949 that were acquired by Universal in that purchase. 700 films, all made in that 20-year period that were only shown on TV and some were given releases. So no wonder this got totally just lost in the mix. I mean, like like we said earlier on, it, it didn't have any major stars in it. It didn't have uh, you know, any, any Oscar nods. I mean, 
the reviews at the time praised the performances, and rightly so. I mean, the performances in the film are outstanding. I mean, that that's one reason alone to watch this movie is how great the performances are. Yeah, Mary Morris especially. So when you told me about this film last week and said that you were going to double feature it with Freaks, now that we've watched it again, would you still have that pairing or would you maybe consider another film to pair with this? Mm, that is a good question. I mean, I, I think that would be a great pairing, but since we are on this one and it's kind of its own thing now. It feels like its own thing to me now that I've seen it. I would pair Freaks with this. So now I have to think what I'd pair this with, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got you. Um, I, w- I would pair this with the film Sudden Fear with Joan Crawford. Oh, yeah. Where it's, it's Joan Crawford plays an aging playwright who is seduced and engaged to a young man played by Jack Palance, who is a little bit young for her, a little too handsome for her, and people think it's too good to be true, and it just might be. And it turns into a very suspenseful, psychological thriller, cat and mouse kind of climax. Mm. I think it would pair perfectly with this film, just playing it on like the opposite spectrum. Now, we were talking about this a little bit today before we started the movie tonight. You mentioned that you had just watched the Betty Davis version of The Letter. Yeah, great movie. So I I think I would pair this with the 1929 Gene Eagles version. Which I haven't seen, but you have. Yeah, and it's actually, you can you can get it on Apple TV. Yeah, like you can, it's uh, Apple, you can buy it, buy it from there, and it's, it's a pretty good preservation of it. It looks looks really good. I actually had uh, the pleasure of seeing the first screening of that movie in like, oh my gosh, it was considered a lost film for the longest time. And and the story behind that is that it was it's 1929. And so they had found it in archives, but they only had the film. So it was assumed that the film didn't have any audio. And when it was previewed, they found that there was no audio. But then another a preservationist like back in 2002, maybe um, wanted to see it. And they just kept telling him there's no audio, there's no audio. And he's like, let me just see it. And he just kept watching it and discovered that in the first five minutes of the film, there's no audio. So it was just a mistake. And so he notified everybody, Hey, this has, this actually has audio. And I got to see like the first time it had been shown in like maybe 50, 60 years because it was assumed lost. That was a magic moment. That was great. That was at the, uh, I was at, actually at the Egyptian theater in Los Angeles. So um, I've, I've actually seen a nitrate print of that. <laughs> and so it, it's, amazing. it's amazing, beautiful film. You have this, this really strong female character again. And I think kind of, you know, that would be like a equivalent of, you know, watching like a Frankenstein Dracula and the mummy back to back, maybe. Oh, you know, wow. Watching the letter 1929 with Gene Eagles with double door. And then sudden and they were fear. Both Paramount. Yeah, and they were they were both Paramount. So triple feature. Yeah, because I mean those those are short movies, and sudden fear is not that long either. So, and well, I wonder what was happening at Paramount that they they made a few movies that had really strong female characters. We'll have to we'll have to look into that and see if there was a you know some of the same people involved in in uh, getting the letter made and getting Double Door made. These these hour long podcasts sometimes aren't enough for some films. Sometimes it's too long for some of the films we talk about. But yeah, we should do like a follow up uh, episode of just like this is what we found, uncovered knowledge or something. So I encourage you folks listening to seek out this movie. Now we did a little research of where you can find it. You can find it on YouTube. It's rentable there. You can find it on the Internet Archive at archive.org. I don't know what quality of copy that is. 
But Kino Lorber's website right now has it on sale on Blu-ray for $9.99. That's 60% off the regular price. I don't know if that's like going to be a permanent sale item or if it's something just temporary, but I'm buying this as soon as we we wrap up this podcast. I want this in my collection. It's amazing. I might just buy it again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want them to get their money back <laughs> from, from all those years ago. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Mikey, again, thank you for bringing this film to my attention. Thanks for running in here into the studio and talking about it. And, uh, yeah, always my go-to guy for for film history and, and some enlightening movies that you bring to the table yeah of course happy to do it and thanks for being open to some of the weird stuff i bring your way yeah we got to get you on the other podcast so we can talk about like some b movies and slasher movies nightmare beach especially because i still love that movie (laughs) yeah that one is kino kino has that one too guys look it up you won't be disappointed yeah it's pretty great well thank you for joining us uh my name is antonio this is the cult worthy classic i was here with mikey jones again Mikey Jones again. Like I always say, look me up on Letterboxd, Instagram, Facebook, or check out the website, thecultworthy.com. I have just updated it with a bunch of new reviews, as well as links to all of my brother and sister podcasts in my podcasting Twitter universe that boost me up. And so I'll boost them up too. Check them out on my website. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Goodbye.